Take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 3, verse 14 through 21. That's going to be our passage actually for the next few weeks as we look at uh, who God is. And I'll get into exactly what we're going to look at today here in just a second. But let me just say as a, as a point of information that it's days like today that really solidify why it's important, number one, that you have your own personal time of study. But it's also it, today will highlight, and you'll see exactly why here in just a moment, it will highlight the importance of our Wednesday night and our Sunday night studies. Uh, and if we were able during normal times to have Sunday school, it would also highlight the importance of Sunday school because there's just no way I'm going to be able to get to every single facet of the subject that we look at today in, in an hour and 30 minutes of my sermon. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, in 30 minutes, I was seeing if y'all were awake yet in, um, uh, in, in 30 minute sermon. And David asked me if I would be done by 1230 today. I don't know what he's got to do this afternoon, but um, but I promised that I would be done at least by 130. So we'll we'll do our best to to get done by then. But no, I, I, I have a lot to pack into this 30 minutes that we have together to study God's word. And so as you are there now in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. Let's go to the Lord's Lord in prayer and ask His blessing on us as we seek to understand what He would say to us today. And uh, then we'll get into this text and seek to understand this truth of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to You today knowing that You are good and that Your mercy endures forever. Lord, we have had heavy hearts as we have gone through this time of worship and prayed for one another and confessed our sins and sought your blessing on our time together. Lord, as we break the bread of life together and study from your word, Lord, may we come to understand at least just a little bit more of who you are. And through understanding that, may we be changed and through that understanding and that change to be more and more like your son. Father, I confess that this is a difficult topic to preach. It's a difficult topic to walk the line between getting enough content and bringing the people that you would have me to preach to to understand it and at the same time being an encouragement and building them up. And so, Father, I pray that you would help me to speak the words that I should say and that you would take away those words that might distract or lead astray. And that each, each thing might be done for your glory and honor today. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. So last week we started to answer the question of who the true God is. Who is it that we worship? And we saw that the one true God is starkly different from the false gods of the land. Because this God is a covenanting God. The God that is the true God of the universe, He is patient, He is slow to anger, He is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So now that we have seen who the true God is, we need to ask, what is He like? What, who is this true God? What are His characteristics? And how, how does He reveal Himself to us? And I have to confess, as I've mentioned already, that this is deep water. This is a difficult task for me as we turn our attention 
to who this God is. I have my work as a pastor cut out for me. In fact, today I'm going to dispense with all of the normal trappings, the illustrations, the the uh, the you know, alliterated points, all of that. And we're going to get down to brass tacks because I want to jump off into what I think is the deepest well of Scripture. In fact, this is a well that doesn't have any bottom to it. You can study it all your life. You can know as much as you want to about Scripture and still not come to understand this doctrine fully. So to understand this one true God you have to understand that God reveals Himself in what we as Christians call the Trinity. So I want to start the sermon today by making a few points about the doctrine of the Trinity, and then I want to close by looking at who God the Father is, the first person of the Trinity. So let's start by reading our passage from Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21 together, and then we'll get into the substance of this passage together. So follow along with me as I read Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. God's Word says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, According to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen. Now you may notice as we walk through this series on worship that I tend to reference the book of Ephesians a great deal. And the reason for that is very simple. Paul, in this little book of Ephesians, has a number of... Uh, songs or prayers or doxologies of praise that he offers to God. We already looked at one of them in Ephesians chapter 1. There's one also in Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 10. And now we come to another one of those examples in this little book of Paul just bursting into praise to God for something. And I think it's appropriate if we're going to do a series on the doctrine of worship to look at songs of praise in the in the Bible. And this one stands as a great example, another example of a picture of the ways that God has worked in our salvation. And you may have noticed as we read that passage together that Paul involves every person of the Trinity in this prayer. In verse 14, he praises the Father. In verse 16, he prays that the power of the Holy Spirit would be on the church. And in verse 17, he prays that the presence of Christ would strengthen their faith. Because this little prayer involves every person of the Trinity, 
I want to use this passage as kind of the launching point for the next three sermons. This sermon and the next two as we look at the persons of the Trinity. We're going to look at the Father today and the Son next week and the Holy Spirit in the following week and consider from this text what God says about himself. But before we can look at each person of the Trinity, we need to first understand what the Trinity is. And this passage helps us to understand that just a little bit. And so you may notice, you will notice as you read this passage, that there's a great deal of interchange between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So we see, for example, Paul praying in verse 16, that the Holy Spirit would indwell the inner being of every believer. And then immediately following that in verse 17, he prays that Christ would be present in the heart of every believer. So which is it? Is it the Holy Spirit that's supposed to be present in the heart of the believer? Or is it, the, is it Christ that's supposed to be present in each believer? And then we see a doxology of praise in verse 20 and 21, when Paul begins to praise God the Father, who is able to do far more than we could ever ask. And he says, because of the power working in us. Now, what power is he referring to? He's referring to the power of the Holy Spirit that he just prayed for back in verse 16. So what you see just in this short prayer of Paul is that what Paul has in mind is both a unity and a diversity of God. He mentions three different persons in this little prayer, but he unites them in the same power and the same source. This truth about God being the Trinity, being three persons in one being, is implied even in the Old Testament all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. It's implied uh, that God has worked in the world by representing himself as three persons in one being. Think back all the way to the first three, four verses of Genesis chapter 1. We find in those first four verses that God, number one, is decreeing something. God the Father decrees. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We find in verse 2 that the Holy Spirit is hovering over the face of the deep. And then lastly, we find God speak. And when He speaks, in verse 4, something happens. Something comes to be. And we find the Son, who is said to be the Word of God, present in the act of creation as God's word goes forth and creates. We also find it in this mysterious figure known as the angel of the Lord that we find appearing at very important turns in the story of Israel's history. You find it in him, you find this angel of the Lord in Exodus chapter 3 when you know the story of the burning bush. It says the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in a burning bush. Bush. And this angel of the Lord, when he speaks, he doesn't say, Thus says the Lord. He says, I say, do this. And this angel of the Lord, you know the story when Moses comes to this burning bush, the first thing that he says is, 
Take off your shoes, for the place on which you stand is holy ground. This angel of the Lord is the very presence of God in a real, real uh, physical form before Moses. And he speaks with the authority of God and he is holy just as God is holy. We also find it in another mysterious figure known as the Son of Man. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, Daniel has this vision of a Son of Man who comes on the clouds of heaven. Now that should be, should, when you hear the phrase clouds of heaven, bells should go off in your head because if you think back to the story of Exodus, who represents himself as a cloud from heaven? God, right? But now in Daniel chapter 7, we find this Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven. And not only that, but he's given the authority of God himself. He is given the authority to rule in God's place. All of these and more Old Testament references give us an idea that God has revealed himself as three persons in one being. But when we get to the New Testament, that truth is said explicitly. And there are plenty of places that we could go in the New Testament to understand the doctrine of the Trinity, but there's no better place to understand who God is as this Trinity than in the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John has the clearest statements about this unity of God the Father and God the Son. So, for example, at the very beginning of the Gospel of John, in John chapter 1, verse 1, he takes the same language that's used in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, and he uses it to speak of Jesus when he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was what? He was God, right? Later on in chapter 14, verse 8, Philip is saying, Philip tells Jesus, God revealed to us the Father and it will be enough. We'll be satisfied with that. And Jesus says, have I been with you so long, Philip, and you do not recognize me? If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And then later on, down in verse 18 of chapter 14, Jesus makes the promise that he will send a helper who is the Holy Spirit. And when he says that he'll send a helper, he says that this Holy Spirit will carry out everything that he has taught. And through this, the Holy Spirit will make sure that Christ never leaves his disciples. Now, the summation of the Bible's teaching on the Trinity is this. And if you're taking notes, this is an important thing that you might want to write down. The summation of the Bible's teaching on the Trinity is the one true God is one in being and three in person. The one true God is one in being and three in person. Now, over the centuries, the Christian church uh, has sought to understand this teaching. And there have been those who have sought to get down to the very bottom of this truth about the Trinity. They've tried to fully comprehend it and explain it. And most of the time, when somebody sets out to do this, they end up in terrible error or even heresy. Now, just to explain, heresy 
is the idea that you have gone outside the bounds of the Christian faith. That what you believe is no longer a Christian belief. And so over the course of Christian history, there have been these heresies that have come up that about particularly the Trinity. And I want to go through the, a few of them to explain them because they help us to understand what we don't mean when we talk about the Trinity. And now I'm going to nerd out a little bit here, and I apologize for that up front. But if you'll stay with me, we'll get to a point about this at, at the end here. But there are three major heresies that have cropped up over the course of church history. There are a lot of others, but there are three basic categories that all heresies fall into. And so I want to detail these categories by explaining the three major heresies that have come up in church history. The first is what's known as Arianism. Now, Arianism is named after a priest from the, uh, from the city of Alexandria named Arius. And Arius had a saying that he liked to repeat when he preached, and that is, there was a time when he was not. There was a time when he was not. And what he meant by that is he looked at this idea of the Trinity and he said, no, there's no way that God could be one in being and three in person. So what I think really happened is that Jesus was the first created being. There was a time when he was not. That's what he means. So Jesus was the first thing that God created. And most Arians believe that Jesus is, in the Old Testament, the archangel Michael. Now you might hear that and say, man, Brother Nathan, that's something that happened way back in the 300s AD. That, that's been, what, um, you know, 1500, 1600, 1700 years since that happened. Why should I care about old brother, or not brother, Arius? Why should that bother me? Well, Arianism is actually still around today. It's found in cults like the Jehovah's Witness and in Mormonism today. You find it very easily even in our day. Now, the church answered the statement of Arius by meeting at a council that's probably the most important church council that ever held, was ever held, known as the Council of Nicaea. And in the Council of Nicaea, they said that Jesus is, this is their words, very God of very God. In other words, Jesus is as much God as the Father is. So that's the first category, Arianism. The second major heresy is the heresy of modalism. Now, modalism, you could think of it as kind of the exact opposite or, or an answer to Arianism. And modalism taught that when you read in the Bible these references to the Son and the Spirit, really what this is, is it's really God the Father taking different forms. So when you read about God coming as Jesus, it's really God the Father putting on human flesh and becoming like us. Or when you read about the Spirit, it's really God the Father becoming the Spirit and being present in us. It's modal. It's, he takes different forms depending on the situation and what he needs to do. Now, the church answered this heresy by saying that God is three in personality and one in essence. 
Each person of the Trinity exists as a separate personality, but each one is the same essence of God. Now, the modalist, you might think, well, that's that's far gone. We don't see that anymore. But actually, the modalists are still around in a group known as the Oneness Pentecostals. And if you ever have heard or read anything by T.D. Jakes, for example, Bishop T.D. Jakes is a modalist. He believes that God is just one unity that reveals himself in these different forms. The third major heresy is the major heresy of tritheism. Okay, so if God is not just one being that changes his form into all these different other uh, forms, he must just really be three separate persons who are actually separate gods, and they all three work together kind of like a committee, and they all get together on any one thing and decide what they want to do. And so all three are separate gods, and they represent themselves differently, but they all work together as the same Godhead. And to this, the church answered again that God is one in being. Now, if your head isn't spinning by now, you probably fell asleep at some point. So wake back up and let's, let's get into just a few little things about this before I go on to talk about who God the Father is. I wanted, you might have fallen asleep, but I wanted to detail all of these heresies so that you might not make the effort of getting to the bottom of the Trinity. I want you to see that it's a fool's errand to try to understand and to completely wrap your mind around the idea of the Trinity. This doctrine is what we call a mystery of the faith. And there are a lot of mysteries about Christianity. How is it that Jesus Christ can be both fully God and fully man? How is it that he could be born of a virgin? How is it that he could die for our sins when it's we who committed those sins? There are a lot of mysteries in Scripture. And when we come to those mysteries, we, our right response is not to sit down and try to get to the bottom of it and try to fully understand it. Because in, in all honesty, if God could be understood fully, would he be God anymore? No, right? And if you could get to the bottom of it and completely understand God, guess who would be God then? You would, because you would have all knowledge and all understanding. But we aren't God. And so when God reveals himself to be a certain way, and it doesn't, the math doesn't literally add up, we have to come as those who by faith come to God and trust in him and say, look, I don't get it all, but that's part of it. And I understand that you are holy. You represent yourselves as three persons in one being. And I confess it. I believe it, even though I don't understand it all. The other thing that I would warn along with this is be careful of, and I would say avoid the danger of trying to come up with some analogy or another that might help us to understand the Trinity. You might have noticed, even though I went through all this difficult stuff, I never gave you an analogy of how to understand it. 
Now, I've heard all sorts of analogies about the Trinity, and I've even used some of them myself in times past, but I got away from that because I found that those analogies, whether they're the analogy of water and ice and vapor or the analogy of father and son and brother, they run into two problems. First of all, they never fully and adequately help us to understand the subject of the Trinity. And along with that, they have a very real danger of falling into one of these heresies. So to give you an example, the idea of water, ice, and vapor, what does that sound a lot like? Modalism, right? It sounds like God's changing his modes into one form or another. Same thing with father, son, and brother, or whatever the analogy is. It's not I can be a father and a son and a brother at the same time, but it's still just one person. But God represents himself as three persons in one being. The other reason that I think it's important that we avoid these analogies is we don't need them because God has already given us the analogies we need in his word. He's already told us what he's like. And one of the best ways that you can understand the Trinity is to understand the roles that each person in the Trinity carries out. Each person in the Trinity has been involved in creation, they are involved in our salvation, and they are involved in the purposes of God in the world. And we find that in Scripture when we find that God the Father, He acts as Creator and as Father. And we find that in the Son acting as the Word and the image. And we find that as the Spirit acting as the empowering life of God. Or if you want to understand it more in line with how we worship, you can understand it this way, that we worship, our worship is directed to the Father, through the Son, and in the power of the Holy Spirit. So with all that in mind, in the little bit of time that we have left, let's consider the role of God the Father. And in the next two weeks, we'll look at the role of God the Son as Word and image and as God the Holy Spirit in His life-giving power. But let's consider the role of God the Father. Now we see this role detailed actually in the passage that we read from Ephesians 3. If you'll look back at Ephesians 3 at verses 14 and 15, you'll notice that Paul praises God the Father and he has this statement from whom every family on earth is named. Now that phrase is jam-packed with meaning. I want to suggest two meanings that this past, that phrase has. First, it means that God the Father has created every family on earth. We know that already because we already referred to Genesis chapter 1-1 that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. But it's important to understand that the idea of the creator God isn't just limited to the mechanics of making a world and everything in it. The, the idea of God as creator, it also deals with God's purpose and his decree. So in Isaiah chapter 46, verses 9 through 10, it says, I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done 
saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. You see, everything that exists and everything that unfolds in the story of this world is because of God's purpose. He didn't just create the world and say, all right, good luck, I'm gone. And he didn't just, he doesn't just stand over it and watch it happen. He is intimately involved in purposing the things that happen in this world and even the things down to what happens in your life. He is what we call sovereign. He is in control of all things, working them together for his glory and our good. Second, the statement that Paul makes about God the Father drives at the concept of God's fatherliness. Not only is God creator, but God is the ultimate and the ideal father. Now, when I say that, some of you have a great example of a father to look to. Some of you can think of all the ways that your father met the expectation of what it is to be a father. But even those good fathers sin. Even those good fathers fall short. But some of you, on the other hand, don't look to your father as an example of anything. You might have baggage that you carry to this day because of your earthly father. But even though you might have had a terrible father, the way you know that you have a terrible father is because you have an ideal of who a good father should be, right? The way you know that you should have had a better father is because there is a good father. And he is the creator of the universe who has purposed this world and your life for your good. And he loves you even though he has allowed you to have a bad father. And even that bad father in his negative example is a testimony to the good father of the universe. So think about it this way. Think about it in the way that he interacts with his creation. Think about Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve sinned and God cursed them. But even as he cursed them, he provided a sacrifice. He killed an animal. He skinned that animal and he provided a hide that would cover their nakedness, cover their shame. Even as he judged Cain for killing his brother, he marked Cain so that others would not kill him and provided protection for him. When the world became full of violence, he did judge the world with a flood, but he also saved a remnant in the family of Noah. He gathered the nation of Israel together and made them his special possession. He rescued them from slavery in Egypt. He gave them a special covenant and he even saved a remnant for himself, even as he judged them with the terrible destruction of Babylon. And the clearest evidence of God's fatherly love is found in the gift of his son. Remember, the the most famous of Bible verses we ever memorized from John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. How could you not delight in such a marvelous God? 
He has made you. Psalm chapter 139 verse 13 says that He knit you together in your mother's womb. And not only that, but He has purposed your life for His glory. All of the ups and downs, the love, the joy, all of it is purposed by a loving God. And he has and he's given his son to you that you might be saved and be a part of his family. So, friend, this good God, this good father loves you. He has purposed your life and he has given your son, his son so that you might be saved. Won't you come in faith and repentance today and trust in him? Brothers and sisters, it is this loving Father who calls us to delight in Him. He does not call us as an austere, removed, unapproachable master who demands everything and gives nothing. No, He calls us as a loving Father calls His children to come and rest upon His lap. This is the God we worship. This is is the God we serve out in the world. May the love of this Father motivate us to glad and grateful lives of worship. In just a moment, we're going to have an invitation. And as we do, I invite you, if you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, today is the day to surrender to this Father of love who has given everything for you that you might be joined to Him as a new family member in the family of God. If you want to come down in just a moment, I'm going to be at the front and I'd be glad to talk with you about how you can receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Or even if you're intimidated by that and you don't want to do that, I will be at the back after the service and I'd be glad to talk with you about how you can trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. But as the Lord leads, I hope that you will respond. Or if you want to trust, uh, I want to recommit and uh, show your love for the Lord in your service to others and in your desire to recommit and uh, reaffirm your love for him. You're welcome to come and pray at the foot of the pulpit or pray in your pew as the Lord leads. But I hope that you will respond to the Lord as we have this hymn of response. In just a moment, I'm going to pray and I ask that Noel and Miss Glenda come and lead us in our hymn of response. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to you today knowing that you are a good Father, the good Father. Uh, Even though we hear that word, and some of us may have a perfect example of that in our minds, some of us may have the opposite of what you desire them to think of in their minds. But Lord, we know that in either case, you are the true ideal of what a good father is. And because of that, we know that you love us and you have sent your son to die for our sins and be raised for our justification. Father, I pray that if there's anyone here who has not trusted in you today, that they would turn from their sins and trust in you and join this church in uh, their commitment to follow you in baptism. Father, I pray that you would Hear our song of praise as we respond to this truth today. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.